The Selma movement gave impetus to the Chicago movement. In Chicago, I trained black youth to become leaders and organizers. And in the Chicago movement, which focused on ending slums in the city, we organized tenant unions and initiated the first effective campaign against lead poisoning. I taught gang members how to be marshals and use nonviolent direct action techniques and marches. The marches we had in Chicago had some of the same characteristics as the marches in the South. Marshals had to be prepared to give structure to the march, keep people in line and provide a wall of protection. I regularly brought Chicago activists down with me to Selma to learn about strategy. The difference between Chicago and Selma was that whereas in the South, we were dealing with violence from the white community. In the North, we were dealing with violence among gang members, black gangs fighting black gangs. The question was whether or not it was possible to transform the gang members so they would stop the brutality against each other. They had to be trained in nonviolence in order to respond to the violence of fighting each other then focus their energy on fair housing and equal justice from the white community on the west side of Chicago. This is my Black Book Journal. Yo, what's up, y'all? Welcome to this edition of My Black Book Journal, which seeks to explore black stories through book reviews and interviews to uncover lessons in life, love, and leadership. We believe the stories and experiences of black people matter, and we desire to show the world how black people have contributed and continue to contribute to the changing and shaping of society and culture. Look, y'all, I just want to take a second and say thank you for all the positive feedback that we have received. We are loving hearing from you all. So be sure to drop us a comment, leave us a review, subscribe, right? So you can always catch the newest episodes. I want to take a second and read a review by Tyler S. Jones. And this is what Tyler says. He says, Danny brings a welcome perspective to navigating these times. He is accessible while not backing away from hard truths. Rep Lewis would be proud to know that his legacy had inspired this type of content. Look, Tyler, I just want to tell you, thank you. And I appreciate that review and your kind words, man. I Look, I'm just doing the best I can out here. Um, let's jump into today's show because I'm really excited. The opening quote comes from Dr. Bernard Lafayette in his book, In Peace and Freedom, My Journey in Selma. Bernard Lafayette was born in Tampa, Florida, and attended the American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee in the 1960s, where he was the roommate of John Lewis. And John Lewis persuaded him to attend a nonviolent workshop conducted by the Reverend Lawson. And once he attended this, he was set on fire, he talks about, with the principles and practice of nonviolence. Uh, he participated in the Nashville Student Sit-In Movement, and he would later go on to test interstate travel ordinances as a freedom rider. He even spent 40 days in the infamous Parchment Prison. You know, I remember the first time that I met Dr. Lafayette. He was speaking about the need to continue to fight for our basic rights and how the right to vote was under attack. You see... One direct and clear outcome of Dr. Lafayette's work is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Before Dr. King led the march from Selma to Montgomery and before John Lewis and Hosea Williams led the march that resulted in Bloody, Bloody Sunday, Bernard Lafayette was assigned to be the director of the Alabama voter registration campaign in Selma, Alabama in the summer of 1962 for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. His willingness to move to Selma, Alabama, to organize people to register to vote in a place that was so hostile, some of the white leadership structure wore pins on their shirts with the word never spelled out in big, bold letters to signify 
that would happen in Montgomery with the Montgomery bus boycott or what happened in Birmingham with the Birmingham movement and the Children's Crusade would never happen in Dallas County. You know, Bernard Lafayette was a student of the nonviolent movement and a student of nonviolent resistance and spoke about how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s four elements to a successful movement really influenced his work in Selma. He goes on those elements in his book. The first is, he says, a movement must have a distinct beginning and end. Second, it should focus on a local problem that could gain national attention about a more global issue. Third, activists must be trained in nonviolent strategies. And fourth, attitudes of the local community must be transformed. His approach was to move into Selma and begin with the goal of identifying a core group of black leaders and training them so that they could in turn train and encourage people in their own community. So what he did, he found himself going house to house quietly at night to lay a foundation to support the work he was called to do. There, he found himself in a really intimate setting in people's house. What what he says, more intimate than a big church rally at that time. And he also sought to train a few people who were a little bit more educated so that they could go out and teach other people how to register to vote and what to anticipate on the literacy test they would be forced to take. In reflecting on his time in Selma and these groups from house to house, he says, Small gatherings presented an opportunity not only for people to learn about the voter registration process and the test they would take, but also to give support to each other. As people talked among themselves and bonded over a common cause, it seemed like a combination of missionary work and group therapy, helping people overcome their fears, take a stand and take a risk. He really viewed himself as what many of us would now call an incarnational missionary. He took the time to actually be with people and not only to push his own agenda, but to be mindful of what they needed to really think about their core concerns and their everyday challenges. You know, he challenged people to exercise their faith in ways that seem very foreign and very dangerous. He also created little missional communities that drew strength from one another and challenged one another to live out the principles of the gospel, and to pursue their right as a citizen, the right to vote. Look, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. What's up, y'all? Welcome back. Look, I want to share this story that I never heard before while I was reading Dr. Lafayette's book. And I came across this story where he speaks about the events that unfolded on June 12th, 1963. The night that the 37 year old Mississippi field secretary and World War II veteran Megger Evers was gunned down outside of his house by members of the Ku Klux Klan. I found out from Dr. Lafayette that according to the FBI, there were three simultaneous assassinations that were meant to happen that night. One was Megger Evers in Jackson, Mississippi. The second was Benjamin Elton Cox in New Orleans, Louisiana. And the third was Bernard Lafayette in Selma, Alabama. The FBI would later refer to this as the tri-state conspiracy. You know, many of us know about the story of Megger Evers and his fight for justice in Mississippi, but I had never heard of the young Elton Cox working with the Congress for Racial Equality, known as CORE, at the time. And thankfully, Cox's life was spared due to the fact that he had to make an unplanned trip out of town. 
I want to take a quick second, you all, or take a few moments, actually, and read this section from Lafayette's book about how he was spared that night. Listen to his story in his own words. The third attack on June 12th was slated for me. I had just returned from a mass meeting and pulled into my driveway. I saw a pink and white Chevrolet, which had a fantail like the 57 model, parked across the street from my house. There were two white guys, one at the steering wheel and the other looking under the hood. I didn't pay too much attention to them as I was tired and heading home ready to sleep. The night was dark. A large tree shaded one street light, casting gray shadows. As I was getting papers out of the backseat of my two-door 48 Chevy, I suddenly heard leaves cracking behind me. My immediate thought was, oh no, I'm going to be attacked. I spun around to face my opponent. As I had been trained to do, a huge fellow was approaching. He towered over me. My eyes might have been in line with his collarbone. He had a crew cut and wore a tight t-shirt with rolled up sleeves that showed off his substantial arm muscles. He said, hey buddy, how much would you charge for a push? I was relieved to hear that he only wanted a push because I thought he wanted my life. I got back into my car and pulled up behind his, ready to give him a push. The man closed the hood and then had a long conversation with the driver. Impatient, I wondered, what was the problem? I was anxious to get this over and finally he came over to my car, looked at the bumpers, then hesitated. I asked if the bumpers matched okay and he said, maybe, you better come take a look. It seemed odd but I got out and bent over to check the bumpers. Suddenly, a crushing blow to my head sent me flying to the pavement, flat out. I still recall every detail of the next few minutes. I jumped back up quickly and faced him because that is a nonviolent way to respond so your adversary does not succeed in his attack. The second blow was equally devastating as a blunt instrument cracked my head and sent me straight back to the pavement in the middle of the street. He pounded me with the butt of a pistol, metal against bone. By sheer will, I staggered up again, trying to look him in the eye. The third time he came down on the top of my head was steel, knocking me down again. My eyes filled with blood and he became blurry in my vision. Then I saw the gun. When the muzzle's black hole pointed straight at my head, I shouted for my neighbor, Red, who lived above me. Even in the midst of this attack, I knew it was important for someone to witness what was happening. Red dashed across the porch, leaped over the banister, and took aim with his rifle. I hollered, don't shoot him, Red, and stood between the two with my arms outstretched. By this time, the guy had jumped into his car and was screeching off. He goes on to say, during the vicious attack, I had a warm feeling under my skin that came over me from my head and traveled down my entire body. I believe that it was a spiritual empowerment that allowed me to feel an extraordinary sense of internal strength instead of fear. I felt an intense force that seemed to lift me up emotionally, even though I didn't know what would happen next. It was it was a surrendering of life in a sense. And I was prepared. This surreal feeling happened to me only twice in my life, both times when I was physically attacked. I view it as a form of resistance with support from a power beyond myself. He goes on to say this about nonviolent resistance. Unfortunately, the meaning of nonviolence to many people is that when you get hit on one cheek, you turn the other cheek and you don't do anything. However, nonviolence really means fighting back with another purpose and with other nonviolent weapons. The fight is to win that person over. 
a struggle of the human spirit, much more challenging than fisticuffs. You all, that is so important that we learn from this. I, I think about times that I felt misunderstood or times where I felt attacked in my life. And I and I think about the way that I respond sometimes. But I, I look at men like Bernard Lafayette and how their physical life was under attack, that they were sought after to be killed. And yet. They still found strength to love. They still found strength to forgive. They weren't nonviolent for nonviolent sake. They were nonviolent because they felt like that could not only change laws and demonstrate their cause, but it could also change the human heart to see love in action. You all in reading this, I thought about the words of Romans 12 verses 17 through 21 that says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because this is, it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be overcome or conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You all, we'll be right back. Hey, hey, Crystal Brister here. I will be hosting a special Black Affinity Space, a celebration of Blackness, next Thursday, February 25th, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. 2020 was a rough year in more ways than one, and I wanted to create a space where we could celebrate the beauty of what it means to be Black in community with other Black people. You can expect to engage in interactive activities and conversation and to leave with a special keepsake co-created by the group. Visit bit.ly forward slash celebrate black 2021 for more details again that's bit.ly forward slash celebrate black 2021 hope to see you there i want to take a moment before we close out this episode of my black book journal to talk about two things first voting rights because it was a direct outcome of the alabama voter registration campaign and second chicago because Bernard Lafayette would later move to Chicago from Selma, as mentioned in the opening quote. So let's talk about voting rights. Bernard Lafayette says this about his work. The most significant outcome of the Alabama voter registration campaign was the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson on August 6, 1965, which banned racial discrimination and secured equal voting rights for black citizens. It restored the right to vote guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendments in the Constitution. The 1965 Voting Rights Act was viewed as a significant piece of legislation that fully began to recognize the humanity and citizenship of black people in the United States. You know, this law outlawed literacy tests and allowed the appointment of federal examiners that could register citizens to vote. And one of the most significant sections in the Voting Rights Act, you all, was Section 5, which required certain jurisdictions to obtain preclearance from either a district court for the District of Columbia or the U.S. Attorney General for any new voting practices. 
You all, this is so important because in 2013, in a court case entitled Shelby versus Holder, the Supreme Court in a five to four ruling struck down Section four, which left Section five powerless. And it is with this backdrop that Dr. Lafayette made his comments when I first met him that voting rights were under attack. You know, the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby versus Holder. And yes, for my Alabama folks that are listening, the Shelby in this case is Shelby County, Alabama. Open the door for states to pass what is known as voter identification laws and led to a rapid increase in voter purges. The Brennan Center for Justice, which is an independent, nonpartisan law and policy organization, defines voter purges as an often flawed process of cleaning up voter rolls by deleting names from registration lists while updating registration lists as voters die, move or otherwise become ineligible. They go on to say that this work is necessary and important, but when done irresponsibly with bad data, or when two voters are confused for the same person, the process can knock eligible voters off the roll in mass, often with little notice. Many voters discover they're no longer listed only when they arrive at the polling place. As a result, many eligible Americans either don't vote or are forced to cast provisional ballots. You know, over the last decade, jurisdictions have substantially increased the rate at which they purge voter rolls. The Brennan Center for Justice Research goes on to say that they found that between 2014 and 2016, states removed almost 16 million voters from the rolls, a 33 percent increase over the period between 2006 and 2008. The increase was the highest in states with a history of voter discrimination. Y'all, Dr. Lafayette and others in his generation have taught us the importance of fighting for every U.S. citizen's right to vote. And we as black Christians have a history of helping to select those who represent us. And we must continue to ensure that the needs of our communities and cities are met. We also must be intentional not only about voter registration, but voter education as well. We must continue to encourage people to get involved in the civic process and equip them with the tools they need for effective advocacy and protest. And when people are being systematically removed or suppressed from exercising their right to vote, we must be willing to protest against the forces and systems seeking to oppress their voices and advocate for liberty and justice for all. So if you want to do something, you can go to vote.org or when we all vote.org or rockthevote.org to register to vote or help someone else get registered. I'll drop those links in the show note. But if you want to learn how to get engaged in the civic process and to be a more effective citizen, check out the work of the Ann campaign. You can go to www.annecampaign.org. Finally, I would like to close by saying a few words about Chicago, since it has been recently pushed into the public consciousness, thanks to the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. During the 1960s, Chicago was a hotspot of justice and nonviolent activity. And in 1963, Bernard Lafayette moved his family to Chicago to direct the Urban Affairs Program for the American Friends Service Committee. There were questions on whether or not the Southern style nonviolent tactics could work in a northern city as large and complex as Chicago. 
His actions in Chicago eventually led to Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference holding a series of campaigns focused on the deeply rooted housing discrimination policies and starting Operation Breadbasket, an organization that Jesse Jackson would later take the helms of. Their work in Chicago, coupled with the assassination of Dr. King in 1968, led to the passage of the Fair Housing Act the final piece of legislation uh, that was part of the 1960s civil rights movement. But how does this tie in with the Chicago of 1969 that many of us were transported to in Judas and the Black Messiah? Well, in 1966, during James Meredith's march against fear from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, Meredith was shot three times and was unable to continue his march. During this time, Dr. Martin Luther King and others from the SCLC, as well as Stokely Carmichael, who had taken control of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, decided to continue the march. It was during this time that Stokely Carmichael and members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, began to push the Black Power slogan. And this is when Black Power first entered into the national lexicon. In Dr. King's book, Where Do We Go From Here?, chaos or community, he speaks extensively about how during that time, Black Power was a slogan without a program. Well, the Black Panther Party in 1966 sought to bring a program to the Black Power slogan. This was known as the 10 point program and birthed what we saw in the movie as the Black Panther Party, where chapters sought to implement this program in their cities and states. This leads us to Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and deputy chairman of the National Black Panther Party. What many people don't acknowledge about the Black Panther Party, though, is that they were a natural outgrowth of the political killings, assassinations and laws that were passed, but without adequate enforcement in the 1960s. Fred Hampton was a leader in that movement and believed that now all white people were not racist and all black people were not oppressed. He allowed for more nuance in in his thinking than that. You know, and, and really in watching this movie, I was really appreciative that they spent some time showing how he was willing to bring together a rainbow coalition of people to fight against injustice. Now, I won't spoil the movie since it recently came out, but. I believe that it's an important movie that we should watch detailing a very painful history, but also the pursuit of justice. Um, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this and I'm going to talk a lot more about Chicago uh, on this podcast. I'm planning to do a um episode on There Are No Children Here, um, the book There Are No Children Here. And I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to dive into some of those issues. But if you're interested in finding out more information about the Black Panther Party and how it ties in to today and the debate that people are having, look, I would really recommend that you go over to the Church Politics podcast and listen to the new episode that they just did. It is phenomenal. I recently listened to it and I will link it in the show notes so that you all can go and check it out. I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of my black book journal. Uh, thank you all again, as I said at the beginning of the show, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do. Please leave us a comment, y'all. I really want to hear from you all. I plan on reading those comments out. To follow us, you can go to Facebook at my black book journal, and we're also on Instagram at my black book journal. Now, please 
uh, like our page to follow along what we're doing. I'm really, really, really excited about what we'll be doing in March. I have some really cool things planned for you all. Um, but look, I'll get to that. Yo, really quick before we close out, I really want to give a shout out to my guy Kabe who does all the music for My Black Book Journal. I'll link to him in the show notes. Look, we're out, guys. Thank y'all so much for listening.